We'll read all the way through verse 20 this morning. It's a passage found under the translator heading, The Whole Armor of God. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Efesios capítulo 6, versículos 10 a 20. La armadura de Dios para el cristiano. And if you are new to the Bible, if you don't have a Bible, uh, that's okay. This is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. We have extra Bibles in the middle of the room for you underneath those center chairs. Or you could go on your phone's browser or Bible app of choice and pull up Ephesians. There we go. Chapter 6, verse 10. In the ESV, that is English Standard Version, pull that up and I'll do the rest. And in our text this morning, Paul moves from where we've been in the the household code these past few weeks. He moves from how the gospel shapes how we live within our households to how we live our new lives out in what remains to be an old, a darkened and disordered world. A world that is embroiled in spiritual warfare. That is, a cosmic struggle now playing out in the heavens even as we're well aware, aren't we, of all the resistance to Christ's lordship here upon the earth. And so building upon what we've been learning in the letter to the Ephesians, through the gospel, we who were once orphans and and aliens and strangers have now become sons and daughters of God. We who were once slaves to sin have become slaves to the good master. That is Jesus Christ. And now today, we who were once, quoting Paul here, dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, we who were following him have now become soldiers in the army of the king of kings. Connecting here, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, to what we've been hearing from Ephesians 4 until now, we could say it this way. The new clothes of the Christian life include armor for battle. The new clothes of the Christian life include armor for battle. In other words, as we day to day get dressed in Christ, continually putting off the old man and putting on the new that is being renewed in Christ, Our outfit, as it were, is incomplete until we, quoting Paul, put on the whole armor of God. It's incomplete until we put the armor on because we need to grasp the gravity and we need to faithfully respond to the reality that we are new people in an old, embattled world. That's what Paul wants us to see this morning. We are new people in Christ, who live in an old, embattled world. And the Apostle Paul, he wants the church now, just as he wanted the church then, in the first century, to come to grips with this reality and to find her strength, to stand in these evil days, in the refuge that is Christ. And so without any further ado, we'll turn to Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, to be encouraged as we live out new lives in an old world. The Apostle Paul writes in what is the conclusion to the body of this letter, beginning in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For 
We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. These are God's words. Would you join me in a prayer for God's help? Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us. Thank you that through your son we come to be fellow members of your household and might look to you and call upon the strength that your spirit supplies to be strengthened for service, to be strengthened for worship, to be strengthened for the life to which you've called us to live, that new life in Christ that we live out in this old world. And Lord, I pray this morning, along with Paul, that you would give me words, that you would make for the opening of my mouth that I might boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel and proclaim it in such a way, Lord, that we would see Jesus all the more clearly, <laughs> that we would be strengthened in the task, in the mission that he's given to us and that we would have our confidence uh, all, all the more abounding, all the more growing in who he is and all he's done. So would you fill all of us with your spirit that we might hear and understand and believe the words before us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. What comes to mind for you when you hear the phrase, spiritual warfare. Are you intrigued? <laughs> Maybe you're saying, it's about time we talked about this on a Sunday morning. What have we been doing not talking about spiritual warfare all this time? <laughs> Maybe uh, on the other end, you're, you're fearful, you're uncomfortable, you're reluctant to press into that topic. Maybe you're not really sure, to be honest, about what you think because you're not really sure where the line is in your mind between what the Bible actually says about this and what you've kind of gleaned from exorcist movies or uh, untested traditions or superstitions you kind of inherited as you've grown up. Maybe you're not really sure what's true, what's false. You're not really sure what to do with this. Perhaps maybe you, you are right now or you have been inclined to, to give this area, spiritual warfare, a lot of thought, maybe to the point of overemphasizing it or over-speculating about it and in so doing, losing sight of Christ 
in his gospel. Or maybe, on the other hand, you have a, a, a narrow sort of view of the gospel and what it entails, a narrow view that really doesn't leave room for the urgency of this reality. Or really, in, in your Christian life, you don't really find yourself uh, with the need to have a functional category of spiritual warfare in the way you live your Christian life. And listen, however you came in today, Paul's words are for you. This passage is designed not only to, to correct and to balance out our lopsided thinking when it comes to the supernatural or to spiritual warfare, but even more than that, Paul's passage here is meant to, to connect spiritual warfare back to the gospel and to bring us into a greater understanding and appreciation of who Jesus is and all he's done for us. That's the goal. That's the point. Who he is and all he's done for us, namely making us new and strengthening us to live out these new lives in this old world. And so here's the 30,000-foot flyover summary of the ground that we're going to cover today. Okay? Here, here it is. Though presently Christ sits enthroned above all rule, power, and authority, opposition to his kingdom and antagonism toward his people remain to be a reality that we cannot ignore. That's why Paul has this for us today. We cannot ignore this reality. And for this reason... In this passage, Paul equips us for battle in, in two primary ways. First, he does so by affirming the reality of spiritual warfare. And second, by providing the marching orders of a faithful response to spiritual warfare. And these will serve as the two main points to guide the rest of our time together today. Point number one, the reality of spiritual warfare. That's verses 10 through 12. Point number two, the faithful response to spiritual warfare, verses 13 through 20. And with that, let's dive into our first point, the reality of spiritual warfare. This passage here, it makes quite clear for us that the Christian life is a supernatural life. The world is more than just stuff. There is a seen and unseen realm that should matter to us and be properly understood. You can't evade uh, the force of that if you read this passage just as Paul gives it to us. And the Ephesians, they knew this well, okay? And they wouldn't have heard Paul's directive to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God so that they could stand against the schemes of the devil. They wouldn't have heard that directive with skeptical ears. They were convinced the fight was real because of the, the ancient context, kind of like we heard last week, the ancient context of their day, the context into which the words were initially spoken. And so what's the context? Because as they, they hear these words right now, as they read them in this letter, Paul, the author of these words, is sitting in jail. <laughs> Paul is imprisoned for his gospel ministry. So, is there opposition? Is there resistance? Is there someone pushing back on the progress of the gospel? Yes. Paul writes these words, as we read in chapter 6, verse 20, as an ambassador in chains. The gospel doesn't go forward unopposed. Paul's imprisonment is proof of this. They see 
there's a reality of, of struggle, of battle, of, of warfare. But second, beyond this, they're well aware of the realities of spiritual war, of the supernatural, because of their former manner of life before the gospel came to them. Because even as they gather as a church, think about this, in Ephesus, the gargantuan temple of Artemis, right? One of the wonders of the ancient world literally overshadows their Sunday service. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. Write that down and you can read it during the week. Their city itself, the city of Ephesus and the, the surrounding cities and in their environs here, if this letter was circulated through them, this city is a stronghold. It's a, a hotbed. It's a bastion of, of dark power, of idolatrous worship practices and all kinds of wicked things that are happening in which there was more than just false worship offered to false and empty things going on, but a place in which there was true fellowship with the dark and with the demonic. A, 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 a worship, a service and communion with darkness that they themselves, the Ephesian audience, the Gentiles among them, would have participated in. They would have taken part in these things. They would have taken part in the worship of Artemis. They would have uh, given themselves over to so-called gods that were really demons and fallen angels. They would have practiced magic, sorcery, uh, the occult. They would have engaged in sexual practices as a part of this worship that went far beyond the marriage bed between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. They would have used drugs, alcohol, and other substances to get in touch with and to commune with spiritual entities all of which would have opened them up to the influence of these cosmic powers of evil and drug them deeper and deeper into darkness. Can I ask, does any of that sound at all familiar to the world today? And so these first century believers, they knew the darkness was real because they once lived in it and they experienced it firsthand and their neighbors all around them, the supermajority of the people, right, in their city, they were still walking according to the rule of the prince of the power of the air. So they know this to be true. This is a, a felt reality in Ephesus. But what about us? Are we like them? Is our context like their context? As we look at on our city, we don't see, maybe so readily, any temples to pagan deities. We don't see animal sacrifices. We don't see idolatry on this scale. Or do we? This morning, to us here in the, the modern, western, gospel-saturated, at one time very Christian, uh, enculturated world, we, we need to hear that the experience of the Ephesians, though it might seem very different at first glance, is not so different from our own. That's because the Bible teaches us that whatever we were doing before all of us came to trust in Christ, none of us were spiritually neutral. Okay? None of us were spiritually neutral in our former manner of life. When the risen Christ met Paul on the Damascus Road and the persecutor of the church was converted and commissioned by him to go to the Gentiles, here's what Jesus said to him. He said, go to the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power or literally the authority of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among all those who are sanctified. 
that is set apart, made holy, able to live in the presence of God by faith in me. That's Acts 26, 17 through 18. And this church is every Christian's story. We were not spiritually neutral before God opened our eyes to see the truth about his son by the power of his spirit. And however it looked in our day-to-day lives, all of us, the Bible teaches, were under the power of Satan. We were servants of the domain of darkness. And that remains, uh, and that means that right now, then, for us, just like the Ephesians back then, our neighbors here in our city aren't spiritually neutral either. They're not spiritually neutral either. They are under the sway. They are under the influence. There is a real battle being waged and a real urgency then that is lent to our mission when we grab hold of that reality, is there not? We can't convince or persuade in our own power. It will take a supernatural work of God to bring light into darkness, and we need to be aware of the people around us and how they're affected by this so as not to be slack or lazy. We need to be urgently uh, committed uh, to engaging in this, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. This is how we should see our neighbors. That's how their neighbors were back then. And in fact, as we look at our neighbors, as we look at our city and our culture, uh, whatever the supernatural temperature, maybe, of the modern Western church is like in America, supernaturalism uh, as a whole is definitely on the rise in our culture, okay? And you may be convinced of this already, but back in summer of 2023, a Barna study, it reported that 80% of all Americans believe there is a spiritual or supernatural side to the world. So our neighbors are not, uh, you know, modern atheist. The world is just stuff and that's all there is. There is no God. They're more and more moving toward, there's something out there. I don't know exactly what it might be, but I'm kind of in in the market. I'm looking, I'm shopping. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. People are increasingly moving toward a spiritual kind of way of living in the world. Even as traditional Uh, Christian religion, maybe, is on the decline. The rise of those who are, quote, you probably heard this, spiritual, but not religious, is taking off. We can look out pretty casually, pretty quickly in our culture and see the new age in the occult has gone pretty mainstream. Downtown Santa Ana, just up up until a couple years ago, did a witch walk in the, uh, what is that, Second Street Promenade there. The pandemic shut it down, so that's a good thing. But they did a witch walk in which you could easily go and buy crystals and candles and tarot cards and astrological charts and signs and indulge in uh, witchcraft like it was a regular farmer's market. (laughs) Pretty mainstream. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with the Enneagram and the pervasive hold that has on the marketplace and even in the church, a practice derived, that personality tool, from well-documented occultic practices. Uh, Perhaps you you know about the number one podcaster in the world (laughs) who will remain nameless, but the number one podcaster most popular guy in all the world who does what? He advocates for drug-induced trips, okay? Mind-altering substance use to pursue peace and enlightenment and make contact with higher intelligences or transcendent beings or aliens or something else like that out there. And even anecdotally for me, as a pastor these past couple of years, I've been asked more than once, maybe you have too, Kyle, maybe Jason has as well, what the Bible teaches about aliens. <laughs> that has become an increasing question I've been asked. People are wondering about these things. And so it would seem that more than ever, our culture is interested in contacting or connecting with the spiritual, the supernatural. The realm is beyond what we can see, but there's a lot of bad thinking. There's a lot of falsehood that's clouding out the truth of the gospel. 
And as a church, we're called to reach those who are compelled uh, by that same desire to understand and to know that unseen world. And as a church, then, we need to take it seriously ourselves, the reality of these things. So speaking of that reality, in our text, then, what does Paul tell us that we are up against? First, we have verse 11, the devil. That is, in Greek, diabolos. In Espanol, el diablo, right? We have the devil. Verse 13, also referred to as the evil one. Back in chapter 2, verse 2, he says that he is the prince of the power of the air. Satan, the one who exercises authority and dominion over those who are dead in sins and trespass. The original rebel of Genesis chapter 3, who is opposed to God's purposes and is the adversary to God's people. He's been defeated, as we'll see further in just a little bit. He's been defeated, but he's going down with the ship. And whatever he can do to stall or thwart or prevent God's purposes in the world through the church um, from going forward, that's what he's about. That's what he's given himself to in this present time. And he's not alone in this. For beyond just, just Satan and his henchmen, the demons, the, the evil or unclean spirits that we read about in the Gospels or Acts, Paul affirms as well the reality of hostile powers that at one time exercised real authority and influence and, and really directed their evil intent toward the Ephesian believers. Second, we see in our text, there are, looking at verse 12, there are the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there's Satan, there's those evil, unclean spirits, you know, we call the demons, we see them in the narratives, and then we have all these guys. What do we make of them? We see a whole host of evil forces, and these are, uh, kind of in a summary fashion, they're, they're, they're fallen, angelic beings. And we'll talk more about this in another sermon on spiritual warfare in March. So I'm just going to give you the definition. Talk to me about it afterward if you have questions <laughs> lingering here. But they are fallen angelic beings who exercised authority over particular places and they wrongfully and, and, and people and wrongfully desired the glory and the worship that goes to God alone. In God's judgment upon mankind uh, for sin, just as we read in Romans 1, he gave mankind up to sin. He gave them up to their practices for uh, uh, the judgment against their idolatry. Well, kind of in keeping with that, in God's judgment upon mankind for sin, for a time, he gave all the nations of the world, aside from Israel, over to these powers. Until, in the fullness of time, he would regather all the nations of the world to himself through Christ, who is the Lord of all the one who would come in and who would undo and reverse the curse and separation of sin, who would reverse what began to take place at Babel and bring back a unified people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, Jew and Gentile together in the church, no longer serving what is false and what is dark, but what is true and what is good and what is light. And when the Bible talks about that the lake of fire being reserved for the devil and his angels— these are the guys here. These powers, principalities, authorities, dominions. These are the guys that the Bible's talking about are going to be there with him at the end in that final judgment. Okay? So more could be said about these guys, but that's the gist of what Paul is getting at here. There is a host of supernatural evil. And so here's the upshot of that. 
though there is only one true God. We want to be very clear and affirm that. Revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there were many back then and remain now. Many so-called gods. Little case, lowercase g who were more than just deceitful delusions of men rejecting the truth, but were powers that um, the Gentile converts back in Ephesus then and all throughout the world as they came from darkness into light, they were powers that they once communed with. And powers that the Ephesian church put put yourself in their shoes, they might be genuinely afraid of these powers, right? These powers might not take too kindly to their new allegiance to Jesus. And they might be wondering, Paul, are we safe? Paul, are we okay? Paul, are they going to, to get us, to terrorize us, to torment us, to try to pull us back away from Jesus and bring us back into their domain? And so Paul writes what he's writing here to, to address and to banish these fears. But in so doing, first, he does square with the reality of these fears. They're, 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 they're somewhat well-founded. These things are real things that cannot be ignored. And so for us, we, we can apply this and we can grab hold of the fact that this spiritual evil then, Paul affirms it, it's real, and we need to take it seriously. But as we put on the full armor of God and we march, into the, march along the path that King Jesus has set out for us, there are two ditches that we don't want to fall into, okay, as we are thinking about the reality of this spiritual warfare. Here's the first ditch, and this might be some of us. We could then conclude that, well then, everything is the devil's fault. Everything. Then this is kind of a a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, you know, spiritual warfare then is around every corner. Satan's schemes and the oppression of dark spiritual powers, they're the cause of all my problems. Not anything I do, right? (laughs) This is the problem. And even though in the Bible, Satan is called, you know, the liar and the tempter from the beginning, the Bible, if you read it, it never shifts the blame for man's actions from man to Satan. He's a part of it, but he is not the responsible agent. We make our choices. Adam and Eve chose to believe the lie that he offered to them, but he is never assigned the blame for our unfaithfulness. And so we don't want to have, as we think about spiritual warfare and as we think about the reality of the unseen things, right, we don't want to have uh, an approach that so maximizes the agency and the ability of the dark powers and so minimizes our personal responsibility for our own sins and for our own struggles, or maybe too also diminishes the view that God is sovereign and he's working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, even the things that are, are difficult for us. We don't want to have such a view that so highlights Satan and evil and so neglects our own responsibility to be faithful and the reality that God is still at work to do good for us, even in the midst of trials. We don't want to have that imbalance. We don't want to blame our unfaithfulness on a demon of laziness or, or something like that, or turn a blind eye to God's providential working through all things, even the trials and troublous times of our life. So first, we don't want to think everything's his fault, but then on the other hand, we don't want to think then, well, nothing is his fault. We don't want to so maximize our personal responsibility and think that the only battle really being fought is against my flesh and against the spirit in me. Or so maximize God's sovereignty, you know, who can thwart his purposes, though he is totally sovereign, that we, we fail 
to functionally believe that there is a real enemy of our souls. The Bible affirms this reality. And even though Revelation 20 tells us that on one hand, Satan has been bound in the abyss so that he can no longer deceive the nations, there still remains simultaneously a thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. John 10.10. 10. And 1 Peter 5.8, a roaring lion seeking after someone to devour. Satan is still at work in the world. He hates God's people. He hates the image of God and man. And he is, though bound, still somehow causing a fair bit of trouble. And we can't neglect that reality. As well as Satan, there are hosts of fallen angels who are traitors to God. There are spiritual powers. There are all the things we just read about who are exercising influence over people, right, in places where the gospel is rejected or there's not much gospel light shining places where the folks who are really entrenched over there uh, need to be delivered, right, and rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. And so I would just ask you, as you're engaging in the Christian life and as you're wanting to be gospel-centered and as you're struggling with your own sin or unbelief, you ever think about, hmm, maybe as I am engaging uh, in the struggle right now, maybe the problem is that I'm not believing hard enough. Maybe there's an enemy of my soul who is wanting me to believe what is false or believe a lie. Does that make sense? We can think so hard, well, I just got to do better. I got to believe more. Even I got to cling to the gospel even harder. Yet we, we struggle. Yet we doubt. Yet we are accused and assailed. And very often we cannot even think to pray along the lines of, Lord, protect me from the evil one. Lord, d- deliver me from falsehood. Lord, rebuke Satan and get him away from me. We could not even resort to that sort of prayer because we don't have the functional category that there might be an enemy coming to oppose us. And so focus on just do more, just believe harder, just be more faithful and not realize that there's someone (laughs) targeting us in battle for whom we're not asking for any protection or defense. And so just think about that, Christian. Is there a functional category of Satan's attacks in your prayer life as you live the Christian life, as you pursue discipleship? We see There's a real battle that's being waged here. But before moving on to our second point and describing how we we fight the battle, let me give a quick spoiler, okay? (laughs) If I may. The battle has already been won. We can't forget that. We can't pass go as if that's not the case. We begin our time together considering the reality of spiritual warfare, but we can't progress any further in how we are to contend with it until we take in the reality of Christ's victory. Okay, here's what I mean. Um, The world that we live in is not like (laughs) that poster or that meme or that picture that you've seen of Jesus arm wrestling the devil. Anybody seen that one? (laughs) If if you were a 90s Christian, maybe you saw that more. But uh, there was that picture, Jesus arm wrestling the devil. Who's gonna win? You know, everything's in the balance. It's all up in the air. That is not the case okay, (laughs) in spiritual warfare. It is not unsure or uncertain how the outcome will pan out here. It's not up in the air. We remember Paul's words to the church back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. And Paul wants us to recall those to mind. 
as we engage in the spiritual struggle, as we think about these things. He wants us to recall those words, which I'm about to read to mind, as we turn away from our own sin, as we fight against unbelief and the lies of the enemy, and as we live as the new people that we are in a world that's old and broken. Paul prays that we would know this, okay? He prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places where he now remains and where he now sits. Back to Paul. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head, that is the authority, right? The Lord, the sovereign over all things to the church for the good and the blessing and the benefit of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So even as we are thrust out into the reality of spiritual warfare, this is a battle, church, that's already been decided. Amen. Christ has already been seated above all rule and a power and authority and and dominion. He's already conquered all the powers. By his death for sin upon the cross, he beat Satan at his own game, for one, (laughs) in his design in the cross. And he disarmed the one who had the power over death through our sin, okay, by taking sin away. Earlier on in Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10, we were told by Paul that Christ himself, he stormed the gates of death and hell in his descent to the place of the dead and his victorious resurrection from the dead. And as Ephesians 5, 8, and 14 make clear, he, Christ, has shown his light upon us who were once, not just in darkness, but Ephesians 5 says, you were once darkness. We were darkness. But he's caused his light to shine upon us, raising us from the dead and bringing us into new life with him. So if you are a Christian and you worship this Christ, the battle has been won. He has laid hold of you. You belong to him. You are in his hand and no one can snatch you out of his hand. So Satan can't win. Whatever he can do, he can't win. He can't take you away from Jesus and the new life you have in him. And listen, this new life that you're hearing about right now is a life he offers to all. All who are spiritually dead. All who are right now, in this moment, if you're hearing these words, trapped in darkness, feeling totally stuck, feeling unable to pull yourself out in your own power, not able to stand in the strength of your own might, but feeling bound and feeling burdened, feeling like you have been in touch with, communed with, been serving things that aren't out for your good, that you have engaged in some of the practices like the Ephesians and given yourself over to all kinds of sexual expression, all kinds of substance use and abuse and every other thing to try to find something to connect, to find some meaning, to find some transcendence. Jesus says right now, if you've been out there looking for truth and in a world of falsehood and lies, come to me. I will give you rest. Come to me. I will give you light and not darkness. Come to me and I will give you blessing and not burden. Come to me. Turn away from all that and receive forgiveness in life. That's his offer to all. And that's the goodness of the the gospel that we all live in if we've trusted in him by faith. And so then, 
Here's the upshot of the gospel being at the center of our spiritual warfare and battling. As we engage then in spiritual warfare, we don't, uh, you know, have the, the burden of, of, of victory put upon us, but we actually arm ourselves in Christ's accomplishments. We, we march forward in such a way that the defensive measures of the gates of hell cannot resist or oppose the mission of the church. And we reapply the outcome of Christ's victory every step of the way. When we are accused and we are tempted and we are assailed by the evil one, we doubt whether or not we still belong to God in Christ, we say, no, Christ has conquered all the powers. No one can snatch me from his hand. My life is new and hidden with him. We reapply his victory. And that's how we find success. That's how we faithfully respond in the moments of spiritual warfare in our day-to-day Christian lives. We fight with the confidence that we will win because Christ has already won. And that's good news. We look to Christ and are enabled to stand firm in the evil day because, listen to this, he's already stood firm. And he stood underneath the wrath of God that we deserved. He stood underneath the curse of death. He stood and endured all the hatred of the devil for us. And he's emerged on the other side victorious. So as we fight, we fight not by looking to ourselves and our own resources and our own strength, but to him. Satan will not win the day. And listen, we can't get into all this right now. We'll talk more about it in the follow-up sermon to uh, this one. But uh, let me give these to you now, these categories, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to them in March, just for the sake of time. Satan can't win, but there are a few things that he does particularly oppose in us and in the church. The first is the progress of the gospel. He particularly opposes the progress of the gospel. We see Paul is in chains. There's a reason why Paul is in chains. Second, he opposes, he tries to stall the progress of our growth in Christ. If he can't take us away from Jesus, he would love to do all he can to keep us from becoming more like Jesus, distracting us, tempting us, accusing us, telling us we're still guilty, hang on to your shame, so that we don't look to Christ, and in looking to him, become more and more transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Third, what he'd love to do is disrupt, install, and oppose the pursuit of peace within the church. Paul already told us back in chapter four, not to be angry, right? So as to give the devil a foothold, a crack or a fissure, a way to work his way into our life together. Satan realizes that he can't take us away from God's household, so he's content to try to make as much of a mess of the household as he can. He would love to disrupt our life together so that it's not focused on Christ, so that the admission of the church is not advancing and we're too busy squabbling and we're too busy competing, and we're too busy uh, looking at ourselves and looking away from Jesus and not seeing one another as we ought to see one another in Christ. He would love to disrupt our peace however we can. And we'll talk more about that later on, but those are a couple categories for us of how we experience that warfare today. But the point being, church, (laughs) is that it's real. And it's a reality that we have to confront, not according to our own traditions or Uh, popular culture or our comfort level with the topic, but according to what God's word has to say. We have to engage in the warfare the way the scriptures would have us do, which brings us to our second point, the faithful response to spiritual warfare. Verses 13 through 20. And now, 
as I just mentioned, <laughs> there's more to say about carrying out spiritual warfare and, and dealing with all this than we can cover uh, in just this one sermon, just this one passage alone. Uh, and so we're going to be looking forward to the next sermon in March uh, to hear more about what God's word has to say. Uh, but we'll dive into uh, somewhat quickly here what Paul is going to offer us in the familiar part of this passage, the armor of God. And so Paul here, drawing an illustration from his real life circumstances, Paul looks over at the Roman soldiers who are keeping watch over him during his house arrest, right? And he sees how these guys suit up every day to defend the kingdom and advance the cause of Caesar. And he tells us that we must likewise, as Christians then, take up the whole armor of God, verse 13, in order to defend the church and to advance the kingdom of Christ. So he says, like them, we must also suit up and prepare for battle. And so as we put on the new clothes of the Christian life, these new garments, they include armor. <laughs> they include gear to make us ready for war. Let's look again at verses 13 through 18 and read them together. Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, and here's the armor coming in, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so Paul gives us this image, this picture, drawing from the Roman soldiers that he sees right, right around him and also drawing upon that, the vision of the messianic warrior in Isaiah chapter 52, who is Christ in whom now we stand. And as we put on the new self and new life in Christ, we also put on the armor of the Messiah as we go into follow him, right, in battle. And we will talk about each uh, part of the gear uh, in particular, but kind of as a qualifier before we do so, the point here is not to overinterpret or to draw out more than what Paul might intend with each of these different pieces. He is giving us a metaphor, an illustration, um, we don't want to overthink it or overexamine. Here's what a scholar Doug Moose says. He says, it is unlikely, though Paul has that background from Isaiah and the picture of the soldier in front of him, he says, it is unlikely that Paul has thought very carefully about just what pieces of armor to include or about how these spiritual matters fit with the specific pieces of armor he matches with them. So don't overdo it. <laughs> but we need to stay focused. His concern is not with the details themselves, but with the overall picture. Believers fully prepared by God himself to face any threat that might come their way. That's the big idea. Put on the whole armor so that you might be ready for anything. And as another scholar, Michael Heiser says, commenting on this uh, passage, he says what's interesting about the armor and what's described here is that it's actually maybe a lot more ordinary than you might think. Really what the armor amounts to, the armor of God as we put it on, is nothing more than the, the conduct and the character of your average, ordinary, mature Christian disciple. 
That's good news, isn't it? He doesn't say, so now be super, you know, uh, what's the word, green beret, super soldier, you, you know, like get in there with all this gear. He says, the best way for all of us to be prepared for spiritual battle is by becoming mature disciples and growing in mature discipleship and pursuing those regular spiritual disciplines and the ordinary means of grace and becoming more and more of who we are in Christ and not necessarily being overly preoccupied with all these connections to the spiritual realm and here and there and everything like that. The main thing we all need to do is be maturing together in the Lord. And so then with that qualifier, individually, Paul does draw our attention to a couple of things here. He says we ought to put on the belt of truth, which uh, would have supported the, the, the warrior, the soldier's abdomen and held together the whole tunic, all the stuff that they were wearing. And it refers to the, the confidence, the stability that we might have in a troubled world by holding fast to God's truth. And among other things, in fighting spiritual warfare, it really is a battle between deception and truth. And if we have the belt of truth on, we can stand firm in a world of lies, in a world of darkness, in a world of competing claims and so-called gods, and say, no, we have the truth. I will not be quickly shaken. I know Christ is with me and for me, and no matter what seems to be going on around me, I know the church will succeed. I know the gates of hell won't prevail against what he's doing here in us. Put on the belt of truth. Next, he says, the breastplate of righteousness. So armor on, on the chest. He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ, which is given to guard us from Satan's accusations that he would make against us on account of our sin. On one hand, they're true if he accuses us. In ourselves, we have no defense. We have no righteousness. But in Christ, we come to share in his righteousness, his standing before God, which would be not guilty, but instead perfectly just, innocent in my sight, no cause uh, for any condemnation. We take on Christ's own righteousness. That's our status. That's our standing. And out of that status, we begin to live a life of, of holiness, increasingly becoming conformed to who God has already declared us to be in Jesus, thereby pushing back against the temptations of the evil one. Next, Paul says, put your shoes on. He says, put on shoes for readiness. Shoes uh, for the readiness of, of, of standing in battle and uh, proclaiming, going out to proclaim the gospel of peace. And we'll, be, we'll come back to you more than once as we look at how to fight in the spiritual war. Uh, it's interesting that he says, you know, where are the shoes? The shoes make you stable, and the shoes help you get to where you're going, right? <laughs> so what's the direction that spiritual warfare takes? The advancement of what? The gospel. We can't lose sight of that. He says, put on your shoes as you get into battle so that you can charge ahead doing what? sharing the gospel, advancing the gospel. That's the whole point of the battle, is not to just be preoccupied with the battle itself, but to further the gospel. Put on shoes that help you get to where Christ wants you to go in advancing the gospel for the good of your neighbors and for the glory of his name. Next, he says, the shield of faith. And the Roman shield was a body-length shield that was made of wood covered in animal hide, which could literally extinguish fire. <laughs> and so he says, take up the shield of faith, which would extinguish the flaming arrows, right? The, the flaming darts of the evil one. And this shield of faith, our faith in Christ and who he is and what he's done is the primary means of defense that we have. Not anything we do, not anything we add, but all that stands between us and all that we need to stand between us in the evil one is Christ. 
take up the shield of faith in Christ. Hold fast to Christ and you don't have to add anything to your defense. You are safe, you are secure, you have a refuge in him. Next, the helmet of salvation, which represents the, the future hope of the final victory of the believer, the future hope of the final victory of the church. We put on the helmet of salvation and see that even now, when we're kind of on the front lines, things could be difficult. They could be bleak. They could be hard. We're looking forward to a day when all the former things have passed away and the battle is won forever and we reign with Christ in peace. Christ will get us there. He will not lose. He will not fail. Put on the helmet of that final salvation. Two more. Take up, he says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God, as revealed in the gospel and as recorded in the scriptures, is the primary means of taking the offensive against uh, the darkness. We recall Christ in his temptation in the wilderness. When Satan comes to him, what does he say? Satan says, if you are the son of God, do X, Y, and Z thing, which would totally disqualify you from your messianic mission, right? And Jesus says what? Is it not written? Is it not written? Has God not said The word of God is how we push back and battle back against lies because we're taking up God's own truth. Additionally, the word of God in the gospel, that is what sets people free from the clutches of darkness. That is what delivers someone from death and brings them into life. That's what what our neighbors need to hear if they're caught up in any kind of darkness or deception. They need the truth of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, to come in and to conquer the power of the evil one in their life. We need to grab hold of the sword of the spirit found in the word proclaimed in the gospel as our means of gaining ground upon the evil one. And finally here, though it's not a piece of armor itself, um, it's um, an add-on to the illustration that I'm going to make here. He says, pray at all times in the spirit. He says, pray for all the saints. He says, pray for me. Pray for the openings for the gospel. And Paul says, as we take up the full armor of God, And as we march in and head out to the front lines of spiritual war, it should be marked by prayer. And adding to the illustration, we can think of prayer as kind of like that that wartime walkie-talkie, so to speak. Um, It's a means of crying out to the captain of our souls, right? Crying out to Jesus to (laughs) receive, you know, uh, send a, a signal out from the front line back to HQ, as it were, right? To receive his marching orders, uh, to, to rest in what he has uh, declared to be the direction, right, <laughs> of the battle, to find strength and refreshment for our weary souls, uh, to pour out our hearts and our troubles to him, and to be uh, made able to carry on in the battle, to keep marching forward, not in our own strength, our own power, our own ability, but in the power that his spirit supplies. If we take up the armor, we wield the sword, and we do all these things, but don't have prayer and don't have the power of his spirit and aren't vitally connected to the captain, then we won't advance. We won't succeed. But with all that, God has promised, as you do these things, I will give you the power you need to stand firm. Don't look for it in yourself. Look for it in me. Call upon me and I will supply it to you. I will make the openings for the gospel to go forth. You then can walk on through them. And so we take up the whole armor of God and we charge ahead for the purpose of advancing the gospel. And briefly here, I think it's interesting to note what Paul doesn't say we are to take up and and do with the whole armor. 
He doesn't give instructions for exorcisms <laughs> or a recipe for holy water. <laughs> uh, he doesn't tell us uh, some complicated method of casting down various powers and entities and territorial spirits with formulas and incantations and spells and talismans and things like that. He doesn't, uh, when he speaks about this topic, uh, over-speculate or over-emphasize or kind of lead us into uh, focusing so much on the darkness and so much on, on Satan uh, to the diminishment of the focus on Christ. You see that? He talks about these things. They're real. There are powers and principalities and authorities, but we, we take note of them not so that we could spend all our time with them, uh, but so that we could be ready and prepared to advance the cause of Christ in the realities of the world in which we live. Spiritual warfare is not an end in itself, right? If uh, Fernando's Niners are going to win today, <laughs> uh, I know, maybe it's a sore subject, maybe I shouldn't do it, but it's the Super Bowl. But if they're going to win, they can't just have really good blocking, you know, and they're totally crushing the other team's defensive line on offense. They can't just make wonderful holes for the running back to run through and then that, that be that. They can't just be all over, you know, the field in that way and not score any points, right? If they want to win the game, they have to advance the ball down the field. If they want to win the game, they have to score points. And so the way Paul gives this to us is that spiritual warfare matters, but it's not an end in itself. What's the purpose of all this? The progress of the gospel and the glory of Christ as it goes forth. And that's what we need to keep in view when we think about this topic, church. Paul wants us to fight with the weapons that God gives, the word and faith, right, in prayer. He wants us to fight uh, for the progress of the gospel. And ultimately, he wants us to fight for the glory of Christ. It's Christ's glory and the going forth of his gospel that compels us to get dressed, to put on our armor, to pick up our shield, to grab our sword, and to advance the mission of the church, praying that he would give us his power to live out our new lives and to boldly open our mouths to proclaim that gospel. And so church, we press on in this as new people in an old embattled world, in the power of the spirit for the glory of the head and savior of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you that we have everything we need in you, that you have done it, you have won it, and through your spirit, we come to receive all we need. Come to have your victory reapplied. Come to have your resurrection power given to us. Come to be refreshed in our souls in the weary world in which we live. Would you help us to march forward as a church for the glory of your name, the good of our neighbors, and the joy of our souls as we see your gospel advance? in Santa Ana. Lord, we ask and pray all this in your name. Amen.